0: Foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's, it's Blood for Oil.
1: Pink by Emma's Revolution. I am Danica of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, DC, KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCB LP, fm we're also on spotify and apple podcasts check out our website at www.codepink.org forward slash radio where you will find all of our episodes from episode one to our most recent today we are going to hear from our capitol hill calling party uh, that featured code pink co-founder jody evans Norman Solomon and Matthew Ho to talk about the American military-industrial complex and anti-war activism. Making war invisible and a searing indictment on the U.S. war machine, author Norman Solomon lays much of the blame for decades of carnage from Iraq to Afghanistan to Yemen to Somalia at the door of the media, ABC, NBC, CBS, the cable news networks, the New York Times, Washington Post, all stenographers for the Pentagon, which has yet to pass an audit. Norman will share excerpts from his just released book, War Made Invisible, how America hides the human toll of its military machine and trace the roots of the congressional military media complex to better understand how to best challenge the war machine. Our second guest, Matthew Ho, Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network, will share the genesis and projects undertaken by his organization, former military intelligence and State Department officials to make war invisible. The Eisenhower Media Network recently ran a full-page letter in the New York Times, let the U.S. be a force for peace in the world, to call for urgent diplomacy to resolve the Russia-Ukraine war. A disabled Iraq War veteran, Ho, will share his personal journey, from a member of the military to an anti-war activist. Jody Evans is the co-founder of Code Pink. Norman Solomon is the national director of org and executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. And Matthew Ho is the associate director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Yeah. So with that, let's pass it over to Marcy and Jody. First, some news updates
2: and... Cole may be with us. Cole Harrison may be joining, with it, joining us at some point. But for right now, let's go to you, Jody, for a news update on China.
3: Sure, hi, everybody. Great to be with you on this last Pin Congress before we move into the summer. But it doesn't mean we don't want you to be engaged and we'll have lots of plans for engagement. Um, and also, it was just awesome today already that we've had like 150 calls into Congress on our, our call-in day. So China is not our enemy. Um, Lincoln's visit to China, which by the way, was pushed by global leaders and those in the US that were concerned with the, the push to war and the hate on China that was hurting so many people, including, I want you to know that there was back channels from Taiwan saying, stop, this is hurting us. The, you know, the people in Taiwan that don't want to be Ukraine and the people in Taiwan that already um, the big companies were canceling their contracts and moving out of Taiwan because the U.S. was saying that China was, you know, going to attack Taiwan. I am just back from China. And um, I want to say that everyone in China would say people are crazy in the United States. China is not going to attack itself. Why would people in the United States believe that? we would raise up as a country if China were to attack itself. So the things that we are sold by the Pentagon and the State Department that get swallowed whole by um, people in the media and the mainstream is fascinating to the people in China. I I think it's important for us to look at what has just happened with this meeting. First of all, Blinken didn't go to China to meet with Xi, but the fact that that did happen is huge. And it's huge because it means that Blinken agreed to things, that he listened, and that therefore she and China wanted to make sure the world heard that the U.S. is not going to support Taiwan independence, even though they're sending weapons, even though we've got 300 bases surrounding China, Um, that Blinken was forced to say that. You know, as activists, we always need to take the victories when we can get them, even if we know we can't trust the Pentagon and we can't trust the State Department, we can't trust the White House. Please let this nourish you, because it is huge in the scheme of things. It's huge It. it this It's like people force this to happen because communications between two major powers have to happen and you can't be children calling balloons spy balloons and and acting out and I mean, really internationally behaving like children. And, and the, some of the adults of the world said, you have to go, this channel has to be happening. We are talking about the brink of nuclear war. So that it happened and that we have like a new kind of stone to stand on, that uh, there's some agreement that uh, Taiwan independence isn't the, you know, isn't the, in the news it can't be in the news it's been quieted down that does not mean that the pentagon and the white house and the state department will not continue in their nefarious horrible ways but let's take this victory please it's important for our hearts and our souls in there is a victory
2: absolutely and, and jody <laughs> when i saw that headline that uh blinken says he will not, uh, the the United States will not support Taiwan independence. I almost fell out of my chair because we've heard Biden say four, I think on four separate occasions, the United States will militarily intervene if China uh, tries to uh, invade Taiwan, whatever. I mean, and we're sending, we folded $8 billion of weapons for Taiwan into the last NDAA. So to, to read that, I thought, oh, whoa, this is such a shift and I I just wish I had been a fly on the wall for those
3: meetings. I'm sure that Blinken got some scolding um, because they really are behaving badly and and they, you know, the White House and Blinken got scolding from Taiwan even. So they're being pulled back um, in this creating China as an enemy and we know the cost to people, planet and and the taxpayers of the United States when the US makes others the enemy. So please, nourish yourself. I've also just returned from China, and I'll post um, later uh, my report back if you want to see more, but the major takeaway is that the people of China are thriving. They are committed in their continued development, and they know war will interrupt it for them, and they also know that it will be disastrous to the rest of the world. My last day I went around and I asked everybody I could. What do you think about the US trying to go on war in China? And my favorite answer was from a Frenchman who's lived there for the last 12 years. And he said, I know you're from the United States, and I hate to say this, but I'm more worried about it for you than for China. So that's how it feels. There's a confidence inside of China. You know, you have to understand what it is to be in a country where you have grown so rapidly and so like everyone has benefited. And the people in China feel um that you know they they trust their government it has done what they needed every time they push back on something they get what they need and so there's a trust there that we don't have for our own government and um also i just want to say um you can't have an authoritarian government with a billion and a half people just you know to note that um also janet yellen a couple of weeks ago warned about the economics of the us going to war on China. And I think that was also a big part. We have Kerry and Janet Yellen, Kerry for the planet, Janet Yellen for economics, trying to pull the White House and the State Department back um, because the war would more disastrously affect the economics of the US than it would for China. China has really been pulling in what it needs to create sustainability it's like what we call a local peace economy it's like how do you create the economics locally to support yourself china's been doing a much better job than the united states what we make are weapons um but you know when it comes to nourishment and um care for ourselves we haven't been so good um also you know we have uh the effects of the ukraine war on the EU that are happening, but the EU is silent about, about it. And I, I wanna say we had a member of the German parliament come to visit last week, and something sh- she said that was interesting, I wanna pass on so we can think about this, but um, I said, you know, does the German elite like care? Like, don't, don't they care about their country? They're just letting it go to, to you know, disintegrate? Because she had said to me that people in Germany feel that it's as bad as it was right before World War II. And she responded with something like the top 30 countries in Germany are owned by BlackRock and there's Americans on the board. There's 30 bases in Germany. So the military of Germany is the US and the current leadership of Germany is all trained, allied and connected with the United States government. She goes, Germany? I think we're just a facile state of the U.S. So some way to look at like NATO and and um, who those countries are and how that has been integrated into the U.S. How do we look at this global South coming together and this alignment um, in contradiction to the aligned military, economic, and political block that we call the global North? So something to look at. I also Thank was, you. Wait, one sec. I just also last weekend in see delivering petitions to the members of Congress who are on the hate China committee 30 of them and in my meetings it was depressing at best there is a member of the military in all the members of Congress offices called military fellows they came to all the meetings so war is embedded in Congress I hope you know later after we do our push our summer of peace that we call for embedding peace in Congress and um I was talking about what I saw in China and one of the staff members responded, she goes, well, you know, we know better than you because we get briefed by the state department. <laughs> and I said, you mean the same state department that lies us into wars and has the break of nu- nuclear Armageddon? Um, so, and then I disrupted a general from the mis- Marines who's destroying the pristine ecosystem of Guam and the history and homes of the Chamoran people in Guam and met with some of the squad staff. So they're now working to create something in the NDAA that elevates what we're doing in Guam as one of the violations of human rights already in our war on China. So I'll post a bunch of these things and how you can be engaged um, in the chat. Thank you. Well,
2: Thank you, Jody, for that report, comprehensive report. Yeah, good news. We have to celebrate this good news. It seems like there's a shift and I'm not sure if it's because Uh, of the election, the 2024 election, and what's going on with that, or if it's Ukraine, if it's waking up to the BRICS countries, that 30 countries want to be part of BRICS uh, and develop an alternative currency, or maybe it's all of these factors that are shifting the White House, and hopefully Congress won't be too far behind, on, on the lunacy of preparing for war with China. And perhaps this will also signal that, you know, uh, I can be hopeful. I can be optimistic that this war in, U- in Russia and Ukraine, war between Russia and Ukraine, U.S., NATO, Russia, that yeah, that one uh, will come to a close sooner rather than later. And on that note, I just want to say, you know, headlines from antiwar.com this morning were uh, included that NATO's chief, Stoltenberg, says uh, there'll be no formal invitation for Ukraine to join NATO when NATO meets again in Lithuania. Uh, there was also a report that troops are being trained in Poland to stage a coup in Belarus, so we got to watch that one. And the New York Times was out with a report that a lot of the weapons that we are sending to Ukraine are arriving broken or can only be used for spare parts. With that, let's, let's go to our guests. I'm going to introduce our first guest, who's a longtime friend, who I admire so greatly. I'm talking about Norman Solomon, prolific author, Norman Solomon is the National Director of Ruth Action. You've seen those petitions, right? I've filled out a few myself. Uh, And the Executive Director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. He's the author of many books, including his latest indictment of the military-industrial media complex, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. For 17 years, Norman wrote the syndicated weekly newspaper column, Media Beat assessing the quality of mainstream journalism in the United States. And today he will give us an update on that as he talks about his book and reads excerpts from this terrific book. I read it, I reviewed it on Goodreads and Amazon. Read it, review it. Okay, Norman, you're on.
4: Hey, thanks a lot, Marcy. And many thanks to Code Pink Congress, a real step forward for uh, peace organizing in the United States, getting out of sometimes what is a bit of a bubble onto Capitol Hill and reaching out. After all, uh, the war makers in Congress are elected from somewhere and they need to hear from people in what is supposed to be a democracy. I was thinking as you talked, uh, Marcy, about media criticism that a standard for journalists should be very similar to a standard for activists and hopefully for pretty much everybody. And that is that we're looking for truth. We're willing to be independent. The uh, great Journalist I.F. Stone said that all governments lie and nothing they say should be believed. That doesn't mean that governments lie all the time or that any government lies about everything, but it does ne- mean that we should be independent and be skeptical and really look for facts, not just swallow the official story. I've written a book uh, called, as Marcy mentioned, War Made Invisible, my first book in 15 years. I've, uh been doing a couple of things in the meantime, and mostly uh, focused on activism and organizing. And Marcy, I appreciate um, your suggestion, which I hadn't really thought of, that I read a couple of brief passages. But I do want to say that we really are in a situation where war has become hidden from the people who are paying for it in our names with our tax dollars. We in the United States are subjecting so much of the world to ongoing war. It's become so normalized, uh, so much a matter of, you might say, white noise, that we don't give it a second thought. But the people at the other end of US weaponry, they have to give it more than a second thought. Sometimes they give their lives. Patterns of convenient silence and deceptive messaging are as necessary for for perpetual war as the Pentagon's bombs and missiles. Patterns so familiar that they're apt to seem normal, even natural, but the uninformed consent of the governed is a perverse and hollow kind of consent. While short on genuine democracy, the process is long on fueling a constant state of war. To activate a more democratic process will require lifting the fog that obscures the actual dynamics of militarism far away and close to home. To lift that fog, we need to recognize evasions and decode messages that are routine every day in the United States. The nation's faraway warfare draws strength from a diffuse siege on the home front, via media, politics, culture, and social institutions, more like water on a stone or fumes in the air than any sudden assault. Living with adherence to don't go there" zones, We've become accustomed to not hearing or seeing what's scarcely said or shown in public. We've grown acclimated to the implicit assumptions wrapped in daily news, punditry, and pronouncements from government officials. What happens at the other end of American weaponry has remained almost entirely a mystery, with only occasional brief glimpses before the curtain falls back into its usual place. Meanwhile, the results at home fester in shadows. Overall, America has been conditioned to accept Um, ongoing wars without ever really knowing what they're doing to people we'll never see. When, and we've all heard this, when US officials say that civilian deaths are merely accidental outcomes of the war effort, they don't mention that such deaths are not only predictable, they're also virtually inevitable as a result of policy priorities. Presumptions of accountability are hotwired, presumptions of acceptability are hotwired into the war machine. The lives taken, injuries inflicted, traumas caused, environmental devastation wrought, social decimation imposed, all scarcely rank as even secondary importance to the power centers in Washington. In your local community, imagine how you'd feel if police made a practice of spraying gunfire through the front windows of stores and other public locations while chasing criminals. Such efforts would surely take the lives of innocent bystanders, yet none of them would be, quote, targeted, unquote. And so their wounds and deaths could always be called unfortunate accidents and mistakes. Implausible deniability is routine. Deniability is routine for the president, the Pentagon brass State Department officials, congressional leaders, as they refuse to acknowledge that ongoing civilian deaths are an integral part of the so called war on terror. While American forces are supposed to distinguish between terrorists and the terrorized such distinctions easily get lost in countries where people of all ages experience the US military itself as terrifying. The Americans can make and break their own rules, operating as intruders who are unaccountable for the results of their violence, no matter how indiscriminately lethal. Yet the Pentagon can always say that maimed and killed civilians were not targeted. In each instance, the shattering of their lives was just a tragic error. Well, you can imagine with a book along this line, it is as anti-war activism is in general, an uphill climb. And uh, so I really do appreciate whatever you can do to spread the word about this book, War Made Invisible. There are libraries around the country that should put it on their shelves. Fortunately, all four of the major book review outlets in the industry gave it very positive reviews. As a matter of fact, Kirkus, which is known to be the toughest, gave it what's called a starred review. Book list, Library Journal, Publishers Weekly. Uh, there's no excuse for a library not to put it on the shelves, for bookstores uh, not to stock it. And I hope that you'll get hold of a copy and uh, reach me if I can do any sort of webinar, because ultimately this book should be about organizing. Describing the problem is part of the process. Making a difference is, of course, what's essential.
5: Thank you so much for that great show, Danica. I just needed to interrupt very briefly to tell you about the beautiful and energizing days of actions in solidarity with Cuba, coordinated by the National Network on Cuba that we just had. Uh, So starting Last Thursday, hundreds of organizations came together to demand a change in policy towards Cuba, an end to the 63 year old blockade, and the removal of Cuba from the state sponsors of terrorism list, which it should not be on. We kicked off the week in Capitol Hill where we delivered a letter to Senate Majority Chuck Schumer calling for the removal of Pro-Embargo Chair of Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, who's actually also under his second investigation um, for corruption. We actually tried to meet with Senator Menendez to share our concerns, but instead of meeting with us, he had three of our activists arrested and detained for several hours. The next day, we went back to Congress, where we had over 10 um, amazing meetings, educating Congress people about the need to remove Cuba from the list. We were also able to participate in a prayer vigil. Um, there were panels, there was a movie screening. Um, and then we ended the, act, the days of action with 500 people in front of the White House. Um, This rally was really powerful, was filled with uh, really great energy, chants, testimonies, and we were able to even dance also with our Cuban-American friends. Um, At this point, we don't know what's holding up uh, the Biden administration and undoing all the harmful Trump-era policies, but one thing is for sure, the movement to normalize relations and end all sanctions is growing, and we're really excited to be part of it. Now we're going to listen to part of a speech uh, by President of the Amazon Labor Union, Chris Smalls, who recently went to Cuba and h- had been invited to the White House, but chose to be on the streets with us um, outside of the White House. As a
0: union
6: president, just think about the risks that I'm taking. So it's not only that we hold politicians accountable, the president accountable, we gotta hold unions accountable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We gotta get
6: the ladies accountable. Yeah. The AFL-CIO is right there on Black Lives Matter Plaza. Yeah. They so close to the White House that they had to contact them to even come out on their balcony. So if they can hear us, they can hear us, we need to let them know that more union presidents should be standing with the people of Cuba. Yeah
5: that was chris smalls i hope that message gave you some inspiration for the week uh now we go back with danica but before i want to invite you to visit our website www.code codepink. cuba to learn more about our campaign to take cuba off the state sponsor of terrorism list and normalize relations now You are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington,
1: D.C., WBAI in New York City, KPFT in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. We'll be back right after this break with our same guest to continue our conversation.
6: Snatched up by my mom when I was six. I can still smell the smoke as the bullet mist That's a lot for a kid. Had enough when I was 14. I ran away so I can foster my dreams. But I didn't have the knowledge. The streets was too much. Mama just taught me I wasn't enough. You So you live it a hard day. Oh. You never seen them love. I'm not saying I'm the only one. But damn some days I feel like I was 19, there goes my 20s and there goes my dreams, put me on the island said, sacrifice the queen, that's a lot for a teen. cried so much when I was released, kissed the grass up under my feet, modern slavery tried to get the best of me, that's a lot for anybody
1: back i'm danica of code pink you're listening to code pink radio presented by wbai in new york city wpfw in washington dc kpft in houston kpfk 90.7 fm los angeles and we're back with our code pink calling party uh, to continue our conversation with norman solomon and matthew ho and jody evans
3: Uh, Oh, okay our next guest who i'm a super fan of um matthew ho is just a devoted peace activist Um, And I've been in the streets with him so often and he's an amazing leader. He's also the associate director of the Eisenhower Media Network, an organization of expert former military intelligence and civilian national security officials who seek to reach broad cross-partisan audiences in diverse media outlets and among the American people who increasingly sense that US foreign policy today is not making them or the world safer. Matthew is a former Afghanistan State Department officer, 100% disabled Iraq war veteran, and the senior fellow emeritus with the Center for International Policy. Welcome, Matthew.
7: Hi, Jody. It's so good to see you, Uh, Marcy. Uh, It's a pleasure being here. And and Norman, it's it's really great to be here as you talk about your book. Uh, And uh, of course, everyone, Uh, For joining us uh, tonight. Uh, If people hadn't seen the news in a case of like, you can't make this stuff up, just a couple hours ago, the Pentagon said that their accounting for the weapons they supplied over the last year to Ukraine have been off by $6 billion. So that's an additional $6 billion that they can now spend. Which you know if, if you're paying attention like we all are and you read in The Times or the post how there were Republicans saying there won't be a blank check for Ukraine spending as well as a debt ceiling uh, negotiation just occurred uh, although if if you uh, been following that as well you see that one of the first things that both parties said uh, even before the ink was signed ink was dry and the debt ceiling uh, a deal was that they had a loophole. Uh, to be able to make sure the Pentagon got the money it needed, it wanted, which is very similar, if everyone remembers, to what the Pentagon did uh, with the 2012 Budget Control Act uh, sequestration, where they used a slush fund. So while everything else in the federal government got cut by, what, 15 or 20 percent? The Pentagon ostensibly was cut by that much, except there was what was called the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, which is a slush fund that the Pentagon was able to put, or Congress was able to put hundreds of billions of dollars in for the Pentagon. And so, you know, not joking, uh, the debt ceiling act or the debt ceiling deal is announced. And within two days, you have senators from both parties saying, don't worry about it for the Pentagon because we have loopholes that we can exploit and so, of course, today, though, with uh, you know, just a couple hours ago, uh, this uh, notice by the Pentagon that "oops, our accounting was off, we have a dollars extra that we didn't, uh, couldn't account for, or didn't realize, or we made a mistake, or our Excel spreadsheet we skipped a row, or whatever they're trying to, to, to say." But you know, that's the reality of what we're we're up against here. We're, we're not just up against something that is massive in terms of the money. And I'll get that to a minute, it, get to all in a minute, just to kind of conceptualize what we're talking about uh when we talk about the military industrial complex, what it means for us here, you know, locally, uh, but also too, just the willingness, uh, the chutzpah uh of this Leviathan to say. Oh, you know, we've never passed an audit up until five years ago. We were never audited, unlike every other part of the federal government. And the five audits we've had, we've failed all those famously, fantastically. But now we're going to tell you that we, we've got another $6 billion for Ukraine because we couldn't do our math right over the last year. And this is about 10% of the weapons that were sent, about $60 billion in weaponry or so, so far. And they got 10% of it wrong in their accounting. You know, and they're able to get away with this. They're able to move along with this. And part of it, I think, and and Norman gets to this, and and Norman also has has done so much, and I'm so indebted to him over these last years, what I owe to him and the Roots Action, as well as the groups like Code Pink, Veterans for Peace, but this idea of going along to get along. And so there's a website out there. It's called uh, uh, Government Contracts One. And it's W-O-N, not one, one, but W-O-N, governmentcontracts1.com. And if you know Brad Wolf uh, from Pennsylvania Peace Action, Brad Wolf uh, informed me about this. And you can go on there, and you can see over a 20-year period from 2000 to 2020, how much defense spending went into your local communities. And just to give you an idea of the scale of this, so I live in North Carolina. Got about 10 million people here in North Carolina. Uh, over the 20-year period, 2000 to 2020, we have $40 billion in defense contracts in North Carolina. In 2020, which was the last data available on this website, almost $3 billion in defense spending on contracts in North Carolina. You go to my county, Wake County, we're the biggest county in North Carolina, about a million people. But over that 20-year period, $5 billion. And in 2020, It was uh, $476 million on defense contracts in our county of 1 million people. My town, Wake Forest, which we have 55,000 people. And so three years ago, we had about 49,000, 48,000 people. We had $6.5 million in defense contracts in our town of 50,000 people, right? And so you can even see it. You go to the small, I mean, you can, because you can look up your State your county, your your city. So the smallest county in North Carolina, which is 600 square miles and about 3,000 people, Tyrell, Tyrell County out east, uh, they had $120,000 worth of defense contracts in just uh, a sp- among a county of a hundred of, of 3,000 people. Right. So I mean, this idea of, of how prevalent it is. And the idea of the going on, the get along, and, and how everyone benefits, everyone makes out, You know, that really gets to the foundation of all this, what Norman is talking about, and the willingness of people to turn a blind eye, the willingness of people to deliberately lie, the willingness to go, people go along with the lies. And I just want to to end by, by, if I could read a passage, the final passage from Norman's book, because I think his last paragraph is so appropriate for what you all with Code Pink do, what the Peace in Ukraine Coalition is doing, with so many of y'all whose names I can see in the chat and the participants, like Laura Gibney, who's here in North Carolina with me, who is all the time, everywhere, doing what she can to educate people. I, I um, I, I think this last paragraph from Norman's book really applies to what you all are doing. It is, of course, in the very nature of a myth that those who are its victims and at the same time its perpetrators should, by virtue of these two facts, be rendered unable to examine the myth or even to suspect, much less recognize, that it is a myth which controls and blasts their lives, James Baldwin wrote. In its third decade of continuous war in the name of fighting terror, propelled by military might and mythology, about extraordinary virtues, the United States has become its own enemy. Meanwhile, the US's relentless global search for enemies has made them more numerous and intractable. Now, as an imperative is to insist, now an imperative is to insist on telling vital truths and acting on them. As Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I know so many of you who are here tonight. That's an ethos. That's a motto. That's something that you live and and inspire others by. And so I just want to thank you all for everything you're doing. And Marcy, Jody, Norman, it's so good to be here with you all,
3: Matthew. Um, you've been, you know, I've been in the streets with you for a very long time. And uh, as we look out right now, and this unimaginable happening, where when you raise your hand about peace, you kind of get buzzsawed. Um, what what do you see that we can do as, you know, here you have the intrepid peacemakers here with you today. Um, what what is it that we can be doing this summer? Um, and this break time, you know, we you talked about teaching and that that's what we do. Where do you feel the teaching is right now? Because, you know, over our time, we've watched. People's minds really get um, embedded themselves with the lies of war, and and also um, we've watched uh, the lies push people away because um, we you know we've we've had successes that then turn into just members of Congress voting for more war, the bigger budget. Where's where's your engagement and hope?
7: Um. Well, I, I'll say my my the the, the hope is in this, is in platforms like this. Uh, five years ago, would this have been possible to do a Zoom webinar like this without us nervously crossing our fingers and waiting for it to crash, right? You know, I mean, this ability to communicate, and I think this is something that um, really makes uh, the powers that be. Uh, we certainly see with established media, with establishment media, right? With the major mainstream media, corporate media. Uh, this type of technology, um, Allows us to inform, to educate, to communicate, to integrate, to create networks, to mobilize, to organize. Uh, And so this is what gives me hope is this type of technology uh, with uh, younger generations that were not raised on uh, getting their views and their news solely from one newspaper or from one half hour uh, uh, network news broadcast at 7 p.m. Right. So I think we have a whole we have generations that are behind us who didn't marvel at CNN with the first Gulf War. Right. With the first Iraq War. Right? Th- those of us who remember that, what how 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 different that was and everything that came before and what that has then become, what's opened up from that and ability to get your news and, and your your information. And so in, in different different method in different platforms and from different sources so i think this is what gives me this is what gives me real hope um in terms of the engagement i would say have patience uh, the public is always with us the public is always with us in public opinion it's just a matter of time if you go back and look at public opinion polls for the korean war for the vietnam war for the iraq war the afghan war the public is initially this is a lot of what norman talks about uh, not just in this book, but in uh, War Made Easy, which both the book and the documentary, I encourage people to watch and share that. But the, the notion that people are sold and then one, the lie is ultimately exposed because you can only lie for so long. And now with media like this, it's easier to crack the lie, but also two, the moral rot, the the organic corruption of the war always comes through. And so I say to people, the patience, the patience to be there, the patience to meet people where they're at and to normalize peace. A a lot of us, you know, um, were very inspired this past weekend or I'm sorry, two weekends ago, uh, because it was the the 60th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's uh, June 10th, 1963 peace speech at American University, where he speaks to peace being the rational ends of rational people. And to normalize that, because people understand that, people get that, people look back and they say, oh, maybe we had a good war back when my grandparents or great-grandparents were alive, but there's nothing in decades. And so they understand the moral rot, the moral corruption, uh, the intellectual uh, dishonesty of war. And so we have to, on our, our level, organize and be willing and able to accept people where they're at and to incorporate them. Um, And one thing I just want to bring up about what you talked about with the military fellows, Jody, which is really something that was the brainchild of of Bob Gates. Uh, No fingerprints, Bob, as he was known when he was secretary of defense, this idea of having his people in every congressional office. And I don't know if it's every congressional office now, but it's pretty close. What's even worse than that? Uh, And you can go and look at what Ben Freeman at the Quincy Institute just did to to couple with this, where he found that 85 percent of uh, uh, talking heads, pundits, those going on to the television to speak about the war in Ukraine were funded by the defense industry. Well, about 10 years ago, uh, I was talking with a member of Bob Casey's staff, and he actually was a military fellow. He's a major in the Army. And Senator Casey from Pennsylvania Foreign Relations Committee. And this major was very upset because what he was telling me was that of every 10 briefings, the state, the, the, foreign relations committee, the Senate received seven of them came from defense contracted funded think tanks. So not, they weren't getting their information from the state department or the CIA or the department of defense, which, uh, you know, bad enough, that would be, but it was coming from the think tanks funded by the defense industry. Uh, you know, Institute for Study of War, Center for New American Security, uh, Brookings Institution, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this idea of how nefarious and how troubled we should be about how information is presented to uh, those who we elect to represent us is, is something I think that should be brought up to them. So when you go to town halls, when you go on office visits, ask them, where are they getting their information from? And, and I, I think that would be a good way to engage with them.
2: Thank you, Matthew. A lot of wisdom there. I know uh, we recently asked, I was uh, in a meeting with a staffer for,
7: well, uh, a
2: congressperson with a high profile, and I said, uh, where are you getting your news? And the first words out of her mouth were Timothy Snyder, who's been on a tirade against Trump, but he's also a huge uh, Backer and has been for a long time of a confrontation with Russia. So, this is the scary thing, right? People are believing and listening to people who are really uh, state propagandists when you get down to it. So, Norman, same question to you that Jody asked. Where's the hope? What strategies do you recommend to tackle war, making it visible rather than invisible?
4: Um, Somebody I work with uh, said at a meeting that the hope is in the struggle and i think that's true mass media and politicians in office they encourage passivity we're not supposed to in response to media really intended to do much anything but go out and buy things and watch a horse race and uh, probably vote once in a while but the passivity is acceptance the silence as. AIDS activists were saying decades ago, silence equals death. And in the war machine environment that we live in, which is unfortunately the proverbial water around the fish, it's hard sometimes to even notice it because it's all around us. That requires that we not only challenge the overt war makers, but yes, speak to the choir. A reality is that whatever choir there is, could sing better, could sing louder, and expand. And we've experienced in the last year and a half or so the erosion of some of the peace choir because of the reflexive belief that a Democrat in the White House or Democratic so-called leadership on Capitol Hill can guide us. And so a lot of people for a variety of reasons, including the desire to blame Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016, on Russia instead of her closeness to Wall Street and so forth, a lot of the impulse that has been cultivated by outlets like MSNBC is to, rather than apply the same standard that we applied to say George W. Bush, we have given a pass, so many give a pass to Obama, and now giving a pass to Biden, even though the military budget is through the roof, and we have a country which not only has a record of killing vastly more uh, civilians on the planet in this century than any other nation, talking about the USA, but continues to assert the prerogative uh, to invade any country and wage war as it is in many countries now uh, through special operations and drone strikes and so forth. I think that it's going to be a challenge uh, to combine collective action with addressing people about their individual power that is usually surrendered right out of the gate. In 2009, I was looking at the news and I discovered that somebody who had been pretty high ranking official in the State Department and involved with the war in Afghanistan, that he had resigned in protest. And I read his protest letter and that was Matt Ho. I didn't know about Matt Hope, but I learned about him. And then I got to work with Matt, like so many other people have. That's inspiring because it's about people saying, I can, as an individual, make a difference. I don't need to, as Matt just referred to, go along to get along. And that combination of the individual action, if you will, and the collective action. Right now, Daniel Ellsberg, Presente. We know Dan's spirit is with us, as with millions of other people, and it was never only in the last fifty year, two years for Dan about him inspiring people. He also implicitly and sometimes explicitly asked, "What am I inspiring you to do?" And that's always the question for us.
2: Yes, it is. So, thank you, thank you for sharing those words from Daniel Ellsberg. A real hero. We we will miss him. We do miss him. Thank you, Norman. Um, I have a, a couple of other questions and then back to you, Jody. But uh this one's for Matthew. And actually it's a two two questions. Uh one, you alluded to it, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your own journey from militarism to anti-militarism, as well as a little bit about the Eisenhower Media Network. What what's it all about? What are you doing? So forth. So first your personal journey.
7: Um You know, I I lied to myself for a long time. I I find uh, uh, Dan, I was very lucky to become a a friend of Dan Ellsberg and to find him as a mentor. And I always remember the first time I ever spoke with him. I was uh, after my resignation, I became a bit of a media darling. And I had to travel from Washington, D.C. to New York a lot to be on television. And I was at Union Station, a train station in Washington, D.C., and received a phone call. Uh, while standing in the Aboim palm there buying a cup of coffee and something to eat or whatever, and it was Dan Ellsberg, and his willingness to share, his generosity, his graciousness. Uh, it, th- I think that's what was so amazing. You know, Dan is, he, I think, a lot of people would say he's the most intelligent person you they've ever met. Maybe he's the most courageous, but he's also one of the most generous and gracious people you would ever, ever be lucky enough to know. And, you know, Dan said things to me over the years when we would discuss our journeys. We were both Marines. Uh, We've both been Marine officers. We were both born the same day, or we share the birthday of April 7th. Our, our, our journey was, was similar in, in many ways. But what he said over and over again, you know, he said this up until his last days was, don't do what I did you know, don't do, don't wait. And I did the same. Dan will say, I should have done what I did in 64. I should have done what I did in 65. I should have done what I did in 2003. You know, I should have done what I did in 2004, 2005, but I had a weakness inside me. There is a a, a willingness to lie to myself, a willingness to rationalize things, willingness to make excuses. So you go to war, you see, it's all for naught. You see, it's all one big lie. Uh, and you lie to yourself. You, you tell yourself that, uh, well, you know what, that might be wrong, but I can be a moral actor in my own sphere, which is great folly, because war is a, a uncontrollable force of nature, much greater than human humankind. And it will make you its immoral agent, much more than you will ever be your own moral actor. You know, and you just keep telling yourself these things. Oh, when I, I'm a junior guy, or I'm a mid-level guy. When I'm a senior guy, I'm not going to do this. You know, and, and you're coming out of the realization that when I in the Marine Corps in the late 90s, you had uh, plenty of sergeants, major, colonels, generals who have been in Vietnam, and they all stood in front of us as young officers and all said, that war was a tragedy. That war was a, a crime. That war was a mistake. We'll never do that again. And within a few years, there were, we were in two Vietnams. So, you know, my journey was one of of having to get to a point where I was morally and intellectually broken, uh, suicidal, uh, to have the courage to, if I could call it that, to step out and speak out. And I had no intention of stepping out and speaking out. It was people I've shared this with will will know. It It was a Forrest Gump-like experience why I ended up on the Washington Post. But then what I found when I did, was a community, was this community. And Dan Ellsberg, maybe the most prominent, call me when I'm in the train station, you know, oh my God, the Pentagon Papers guy, you know? Um, but this community and the willingness to accept and bring in someone like me, right? Who had been an officer of the empire, who had his ambitions, who saw himself doing who was willing to lie, willing to put other people aside and continue with the wars for his own benefit, willing to take me in right? And to teach me and to educate me. Because I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I I, I still would have been like, oh, Iraq and Afghanistan are too, you know, I mean, it, it's Vietnam, yeah, loosely connected. The continuous line of history that this nation rests upon, our empire rests upon, that was something I didn't have the courage to accept until I got to know you all. So that was that's my journey is, is really with you all and, and what you've done for me and allowed me to be a person who is in touch with uh, who he needs to be. So I thank you for that.
1: Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK nine point seven FM, Los Angeles.
0: You think they're foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say, Cold War, we say, Cold Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say, Cold War, we say, Cold Pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace, go pink to hunger. It was not you rock, but you ran They, they feed, feed you lies. lies, they want you to th-